Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And in 1941, she went and toured around all the RAF bases, retrofitted this small, tiny washer into the carburettors, and for as long as those planes were subsequently in use, they were much safer. She saved the lives of British pilots. Hello, I'm Dallas Campbell and welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions brought to you by History Hit. Now, today on the show, we have not one, but three stories for you. Each one is, I think, a perfect example of how even the smallest invention can have an outsized impact on the world. My guest today is Helen Pilcher author of the book Small Inventions That Made a Big Difference. And Helen, very kindly, is going to share three of her standout stories from that book. Now, first up, we get the story of the invention that really started Helen's obsession with small yet mighty objects, and that is the surgical staple. And then we're going to move on to the much-debated provenance of the humble paperclip, the iconic paperclip, perhaps, and why Helen thinks that it's the Norwegians that actually deserve the credit for that. And then finally, we're going to talk about the incredible story behind that life-saving tiny thing, the washer, as in the metal disc with a hole in. Yes, those little things that Ikea always give you a few too many of that send you into a panic, or too few of that send you into a, a bigger panic. The washer, very, very important. Okay, let's get cracking. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It's good. I'm, I'm excited because I think we've done lots of big things on the show. We've done steam engines and all the kind of usual kind of things. So to have small things is going to be a really nice change. In fact, on my desk, I have some small things. Look, I have, in your honour, I have a washer, I have a paper clip, and I also have this, a tiny staple, all of which are things that I know that you've been talking about in your wonderful book, Small Inventions That Made a Big Difference. Actually, just before we get on to those things, what was it that piqued your interest about small things? Where did this come from? It comes from a couple of things, really. So, of course, the first one is like when you ask people to think of the inventions that have shaped humanity, that make a massive difference. Like you say, people go, well, the steam engine, 
aeroplanes, cars, suspension bridges. You know, we literally think really, really big. And just sort of occurred to me that very often the things that have the biggest impact are these tiny things that are hiding in plain sight. So there was that aspect to it. And the other aspect that really brought it to the forefront for me was in February 2020, I had an operation to remove a tumour that was growing inside my small intestine. And I remember the surgeon sitting me down and explaining to me how the operation would go, right? And how he would go into my belly using laparoscopic instruments and he would cut out this diseased section of the bowel. And I'm showing Dallas my hands here, about a 30 centimetre section, right? Quite significant. And he was going to do this all using tiny, tiny instruments and he would cut out the bit in the middle, the diseased bit. Crikey. And then rejoin the two ends together using either sutures or titanium staples. Wait, explain sutures for the uninitiated. So sutures for the uninitiated is like stitching. It's like sewing. It's like clever surgical sewing, right? So he could either put stitches in. So you're talking here, right? If you imagine cutting a fresh sausage in half down the middle, cutting out a bit in the middle and trying to rejoin it without any of the content leaking. <laughs> That's kind of what we're talking about here. And he said to me, right, well, look, I can either do this using sutures or titanium staples. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, like, wow, this is a lot to take in. But I also remember thinking, well, titanium staples sound really cool. It just sounds good. Yeah. You know, I hope he goes with titanium staples. And that's, in fact, what happened, the sort of pressure of the surgery. He felt that was the best fit for me. And so these tiny, like you were holding up a... I've got a staple. I'm holding it up. This is not a titanium medical staple. This is just a paper staple from my stapler. Which is what? About a centimetre long, right? Yeah, it's about a centimetre. And it, everyone knows what a staple looks like. Yeah, I don't need to describe it. But it, does it look like that? Are the medical staples? I don't really know. I haven't really... They're not so far from that. I mean, there are all sorts of different varieties. But if, you know, for scale, right, the diameter of the small intestine is about 1.5 centimetres. And there are dozens and dozens of these staples inside my small intestine. They're teeny, teeny, tiny things fired into place mechanically by basically with a gun. So they all go in at the same time. They form this staggered double layer and they rejoin the two sides of the intestine together so nothing can leak out. I'm honestly, I'm amazed by what we can do. And this is all keyhole surgery, so they didn't open you up. They just did a couple of holes in with cameras. So I have three little holes in my belly, and some of them are just to kind of blow air into the belly. Fortunately, I was asleep at the time, I have to say. That was my next question. I'm like, wait a second. This is, <laughs> this is, actually, before, can we just, are you okay? <laughs> are you all right? Are you, are you all I'm all fine? good, but this okay. is the thing, right. you know, this brilliant surgeon and his team saved my life but these tiny little slivers of metal that don't look so different like a regular desk staple saved my life and you could think big you know you could think well okay I had an MRI scan before I went in I was in this amazing huge piece of machinery there was the anaesthetics machine that kind of fortunately kept me under during the whole procedure there's all this sophisticated layer of kit but these tiny tiny staples literally that's the thing kept well, me yeah. together and that made me think well you know where did staples come from how did we first start stapling and if these small tiny things saved my life 
what else is there out there that's under the radar that's so small we don't even notice it? And that was kind of where the idea for the book came from. I think it's a great idea. And also, you're such a wonderful storyteller anyway. And I think it's really interesting how not just small things make the world a better place, but they also, behind all these small things, are amazing stories. And I think your great gift is your storytelling gift. Okay, well, listen, let's start with the staple then. Where do staples come from? And they're so ubiquitous, we don't even think about them. They're just like, well, it's a staple. And actually, you think of a stapler... It's the shape of the bottom bit of the stapler that makes the the spikes of the staple kind of bend round and stick things together. But did a staple exist before a stapler? What's the deal? Tell us the story. So that's a great question. There were staples before there were what we think of as modern mechanical staplers. So let me tell you a story, okay? Go back to 1895. So some time ago, there's this American... It's always 1895, I've noticed. We always... Big year. Yeah, the kind of Victorians that, I don't know, there's something in the late 1800s. That's like, people had a lot of good ideas. Anyway, sorry, Karen. No, I think you're right, actually, because when I go back and when I look at all these inventions that I describe in the book, the Victorian era is this massive period of innovation. I think it was a great time to be an inventor. Uh, but this, so 1895, the year for inventions, there's an American guy called Robert Loud who goes off on a hunting trip in the woods of Maine, New England. And he takes his rifle, he's hoping to like bag a moose or a deer or something, and he takes a local guide with him. But, and this is the rookie error, right? He forgets to take his medical kit. He then has a really, really nasty fall and he gashes his leg wide open and has no idea what he's going to do. Now, his guide isn't phased at all. His guide goes off into the woods, he strips some elm bark from a tree, and he collects a handful of angry ants, right? Then he returns to his hunting companion and he smushes up the bark to make an antibacterial poultice, which he uses to clean the wound. And then using his hands, he draws the two sides of the wounds together. He picks up one of the angry ants. And I should say at this point, the ant wasn't just angry, it's livid at this point. Livid. Okay, so livid ant. Is it a livid ant or many livid ants? There was more than one, I shall explain. So he holds up the first of the livid ants to the wound, who does what angry ants does, and it sinks its mandibles into the wound, its jaws, one on either side of the wound, acting like a crude staple. And then the guide gets the body of the ant and he twists the body round, so he decapitates it, throws the lifeless torso to one side, and you're left with a rudimentary surgical staple. You've got an ant head oh my God. with a pair of floppy antennae, dead lifeless eyes, and its jaws holding the wound together. And he repeats that process with the additional ants. You can go online and you can find pictures of this. It's remarkable. It's that thing. It's what do we call um, biomimicry when you, innovation comes from nature? We can thank an ant, an ant's mandibles, for the surgical staple. That's amazing. I'm totally going to try that out. Yeah, and I mean, it wouldn't work if you're on a camping trip, say. And I mean, you could if you wanted to. However, in this country, in the UK, I don't think many of our ant species would work. You need sort of your army ants, your warrior ants. I'm just trying to imagine it's like like if he hadn't been in Maine, New England, and had been in Clerkenwell, or I don't know, and the same thing had happened, then presumably maybe the stapler would have never happened. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, the ants would be less angry, maybe, at this point in time. Okay, I mean, you say medical, I mean, did normal staples exist then? Or was that the kind of the first staple? And then from there, someone said, oh, I know, we can join bits of paper together with such a ant mandible. 
Well, I guess I get I'm sort of morphing between the staple and, and the paperclip there. I mean, if we go back just to the pure staple in its purest ant form, you know, I mentioned 1895, but if you go back even earlier, there was an Indian physician called Sushruta who wrote, I think we're going back about 3,000 years ago, he wrote about the use of ant staples, not just, and this is the thing, this will blow your mind, not just for superficial injuries, like closing a skin wound, but for joining intestines together. So if I'd been alive 3,000 years ago, oh my God. that could have been me. And these ant staples, they, they were kind of, they're not exactly sterile, but they would hold good for several days. And if they came undone, you could just go out and get some more ants. Presumably people were doing this kind of medical stitching at that time. I mean, if people had wounds, I mean, I don't know anything about it, but did people like, like stitch wounds together then? Well, we start seeing, I think, medical stitches and stuff, certainly from the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, of course, we had people being operated on by barbers, you know, when you see the red and white pole outside a barber's shop. And this amuses me, I think, as well, because with barbers, OK, if you had barbers back then doing things like rudimentary amputations, which they did. I had my teenage son only the other day complaining to me when he went to the barbers that he went in and asked for like an inch off his fringe and they took off two inches. So imagine going in to have like a toe amputated. <laughs> I thought you were going to say when they took off his leg. <laughs> no, but you could have gone in in the Middle Ages and go, I just need the pinky taking off and you end up without a foot, you know? Yeah, I have nightmares about the Middle Ages. Please don't make me go back in time and get sick in the Middle Ages because like bad things happen. Can we just talk about your small intestine? Just can we return to that quickly? So why did your doctor decide on the, the staples rather than the stitches? I'm wondering the kind of benefit of the titanium staple other than that, that it was cool. So I have to say, I don't have the complete answer to this because when he came to speak to me the next day, I perhaps wasn't as complimentous as I would be normally. <laughs> but my understanding is that when you use one of these titanium staple firing devices, so you're firing staples in a circle, basically. It's a really amazing bit of kit. They're all going in at the same time. And it's speed, basically. I think it really comes down to speed. Now, there are some instances, apparently, where sutures are preferred for certain complications that arrive. But generally, if a surgeon can get away with doing something clean and fast and safely, they're obviously going to take that route. And I think that was the route. And obviously, it's cooler, which is what I had it's cooler. Yeah, and you probably... Are you going to beep when you go through the machines now at the airport? Maybe. No, sadly, I'm completely normal going through. That's a great story. So there we go. There's my little staple. We can thank the ant for the staple and the Native American doctor who happened to be with... I don't know, one of those fortunate stories that I wonder... Would we have chanced upon staples, I wonder, if that hadn't have happened? Probably. Yeah, I mean, you know, like with anything, it took a lot of development. It was the Eastern Europeans who turned the staple into this surgical marvel that we have today. So I think it's ants and Hungarians. Thank you for that. And thank you to the ants. I'll move on to my second, not dissimilar to the staple, because it's an invention that, of course, we're all totally familiar with. And it is used for joining things together. And you alluded to it just earlier on just then, the paperclip which is, you know, we've all got drawers full of them. Do we still use paper clips? I still do. I'm a great fan of the paper clip. Yeah, I think the paper clip is one of those things where if it hadn't been invented, it would be. I think it's so super useful. It is. What is it that's so satisfying about the paper clip? I mean, it just, it works. All it is is a piece of wire that's bent around in a particular way. How did it happen? Why is it that shape? How long have we had them? The paper clip has this very murky past. I think it's probably safest to say that it emerged when there was some divine light 
that shone down from above onto the stationary cupboard and fused the best of form with the best of function. Because you have this device that is so stunningly simple. It's absolutely iconic. And again, we come back to 1895 or thereabouts. It's always 1895. (laughs) More or less, basically. So round about that period in time, you start to see patents for paper clips starting to emerge. And some of the early ones... So it wasn't just one person, there were a variety. Well, and I think this is a theme that you see in invention over and over again, right? Is that it's very rarely, like with a light bulb, we all go, oh, well, Edison invented the light bulb. And you go, actually, no, no, there were many light bulbs before Edison. There were many biros before biros. And what's difficult with something as simple as the paperclip is to come back and work out who thought of it first. So in the early iterations, you see things like literally a piece of wire that has been bent into a single loop, a bit like, you know, the Ukrainian ribbons that we're seeing people wear today or the sort of breast cancer awareness ribbons, just a loop, right? And again, back in the late 1800s, people were using these to attach tickets to clothing, like if you went and handed a new coat somewhere. What you then begin to see is further kind of bending of the paperclip, right? So the classic paperclip that you're holding up and showing me is something that we call the gem paperclip. And it's the one that we're all familiar with it. And what is special about it is it has a single loop at one end, let's call that the top, and a double loop at the bottom end. And what that means is that your paper is held between those two loops at the bottom. Yeah, so you get that middle bit. How would a paperclip work without that? Well, some of the early versions, in fact, were a bit rubbish. I'll tell you about a Norwegian inventor in a moment, but some of the early versions didn't have that classic second loop. And what that means is that if you don't have the classic second double loop at the bottom, you're gripping the paper with the arms of the paperclip rather than the loops. And that means the paper tends to rip when you pull it out and it's difficult to get it in. So it was really that second loop that, you know, propelled the paperclip to sort of, there we are, iconographic sort of territory, basically. You see that many, many people have tried to claim the paperclip as one of their own. So do we have a name for whoever came up with the kind of classic double loop? Or do we have a an origin story or someone perhaps, if there's many, perhaps someone you'd like to nominate as, I'm going to give it to this person? Well, there was a Norwegian inventor called Johan Vala, and he claimed to have invented the paperclip round about this time and yet we look at his patent he didn't have the second double loop so it's like red Mm. flag here red flag (laughs) yeah and also at the point he was awarded two patents for the paperclip one in the US one in Germany because at that point in time there was no patent law in Norway where he was from when he had his patent we realize now that there were already previous patents for the paperclip that were out there and not just that but that the gem paperclip was already being sold in department stores in America. But I like the story of Johan Vala, and I like it for one particular reason, and I'm prepared to give him the paperclip. Because basically, sometime further down the line, you know, obviously before the internet, Norwegian encyclopedias got really excited about this, and they said, yeah, it's one of ours. Johan Vala invented the paperclip, and you felt that there was this nation that embraced the paperclip and called it one of its own. And I think that's a really beautiful story. It's kind of like it's a big error factually, but I think we have to let it slide because there's this wonderful story about how during the Second World War, Nazis invaded Norway and the king at the time, who was King Hakon VII, was forced into exile. Now, the Norwegians that stayed suffered terribly. 
the wolves raging all around them, communications were cut off, and they found themselves listening to foreign radio broadcasts, they printed underground newspapers, and they made little badges made out of coins that showed the exiled king's head. And it was like a sort of a symbol of defiance, if you like. Now, the Nazis caught onto this and they banned the wearing of these badges. So after that, people started wearing paper clips. And it's rather beautiful because in Norwegian, paper clips are called binders. So now instead of binding paper together, they stood as a symbol of people that were bound together, of a nation that was bound together in this face of oppression, you know, of a people that were fighting for their democracy. It holds so many parallels with what we see today. And then what happened was people hooked these paper clips together and they made necklaces with them. They made yeah. bracelets with them. They hooked them into their lapels, into their shirt pockets. And they were small and they were subtle and they were brilliantly defiant. They stood as this symbol of solidarity. We need to... And then Sorry. when the wearing of the paper clip became banned... The paperclip still stood as a symbol of hope. And I love that story. And it shows me how you can have this seemingly mundane office item, right, that we've all got. If I open my drawer now, I'd have a drawer full of them, right? And we take them for granted. And yes, they're useful because they help us bind our papers together. But actually, there's something much more profound about the paperclip, which is a story that not many people realise. And it's for that reason, I think it's one of my favourite small inventions. I'm going to start wearing paper clips. I love stories like that. I love stories that just that go beyond just facts and technology and actually open up something much more human. The fact that here is an innovation that is used for binding bits of paper together, but then suddenly it means so much more historically and culturally and socially. I think that's good. The paperclip, what a story. Well, I'm going to give it to the Norwegians then. What was his name again? Just so we can, we've got it cemented in our brains. He was called... Johan Vala. And in fact, if you go to Norway today, they have outside one of their big colleges in Oslo, they have something, I think it's like a three metre tall paperclip there, <laughs> celebrating the paperclip. <laughs> I tell you what, we're so nationalistic when it comes to inventions. We love to claim it, don't we? Different countries like to claim. I mean, of course, and you know, and our listeners know that very seldom as the people who take the credit for inventions actually did the invention like people were flying before the Wright brothers etc etc but we like to kind of stick flags in the ground a little bit history tells us that in 1455 the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever it became known as the Wars of the Roses at this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were barred. For when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My third object from my desk drawer, which I have here, so we've had the staple, thank you, Ants, thank you, the Norwegian paperclip, is this. Just a common garden washer, which is just a single metal disc with a hole in the middle. Oh, actually, just while I'm on the subject, before I move on to that, I live in Clerkenwell in central London, and there's a shop around the corner from me called Present and Correct. And it's a sort of hipster stationery shop, basically. But it's absolutely gorgeous. And they have a collection of paper clips from around the world, or like different shapes, different kinds. Oh, it's very satisfying. Ooh. You would love it, Helen. Have you bought some? Yeah, well, it, well, some? annoyingly, it's right by... So every time I pass it, because it's full of all kinds of exciting things, I go in and... Well, you can Google them, present and great. Have a look at them online. Look at their paperclip collection. It's, it's life-changingly good. You must go in and tell them about the Norwegians and the paperclips. I will. Well, I, what I'll do is when I tweet, when this episode goes out, I'll CC them on it. Because I started wearing two little paper clips recently, one blue, one yellow for the Ukrainians. There you go. I was going to suggest that. That's a brilliant idea. That's lovely. Maybe we could get that, make that a thing. So that's that. I'm holding up a washer, which again, what a useful thing a washer is. I've often been asked, like, what is the most important invention ever? And perhaps it's the screw. I always think the a screw thread is the modern world is built on screw threads. But actually things like washers, which is spaces for screws and spaces for things, are incredibly useful. And this is another beautiful story that's in your book. Tell us about a washer. So like you say, washers are this kind of like thing that we take for granted, right? If anyone's ever been to Ikea and bought some flat pack furniture, they will have found a washer left over at the end because joyfully they give us one too many. You know, they're this really simple thing that help to distribute loads. They act as spaces and springs. They absorb vibrations. They make watertight seals. But they go unnoticed, right? They're in everything around us. I can see you in your home office and your, or your living room and looking around you, you will have dozens of washers in all the bits and things that surround you in your chairs and your table and your headphones and your everywhere, okay? And so you don't really think about the significance of them. And I came across a story of a brilliant female engineer not from 1895, from much closer to us in time, called Beatrice Tilly Schilling. 
And she was an engineer. And to kind of back up a bit to tell this story, it's worth just, you know, finding out a little bit about who she was. So she invented this incredibly important washer. And she was born in 1909 in Hampshire. She's an English lady, grew up in Surrey, for like spent her pocket money on stuff like spanners and DIY tools. Age 14, bought her first motorbike. How cool is Very that? Very cool, nice. Spent her teenage years doing it up. As an adult, rode motorbikes in competitions. You can imagine kind of like we're sort of 1930s now. This woman in her biker's leathers, bucking the trends on her trademark, total badass, on her trademark Norton M30, which she pimped up to make it go even faster. And she rode in a lot of high profile competitions where she trounced many of her male colleagues. So she was a badass and she was a real kind of like trailblazer for women doing things differently in a time where they were not really expected to behave like this. Then she went on and she pursued this passion for engineering. She got multiple degrees in engineering. She did electrical engineering at Manchester, where she was just one of two women on the course. Went on to work at Birmingham University up the road from me doing research into supercharged single cylinder engines. So she knew her stuff right. Then when World War II broke out, she was working at the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough where she was doing research and design into carburettors. And then if you think about the Battle of Britain, so we're talking about 1940 now, we had these amazing, amazingly dangerous aerial dogfights going on in the skies above southern England and above the Channel, where we had British Spitfire planes pitted against German Messerschmitts. And we're all very familiar with these scenes of these planes kind of like wheeling through the air in these really kind of dangerous manoeuvres, trying to gun one another out of the skies. And they were fairly evenly matched, these two different types of aeroplanes. They could both had um, formidable firepower. They could reach speeds of up to 550 kilometres per hour. They could carve these amazing shapes. But there was one key difference between them. And the key difference was that when a Spitfire went into negative G... So either when it went upside down or when it pulled into a steep nosedive, very often the engine would cut out temporarily, which made it incredibly dangerous for the British pilots. And now the German planes didn't suffer from this particular flaw, but they realised that the British planes did. So it put the Germans at an advantage. They knew how to get away from the British planes quickly because we couldn't follow them into those types of manoeuvres. So it was really, really dangerous. And we had tales of the few coming back, telling stories of how they only just managed to regain control of their aircrafts in midair. And so obviously people are wondering, well, what's causing the aircraft to cut out in midair? Beatrice Schilling, Tilly Schilling, as she's known, she realises, because she's a specialist in carburettors, that the carburettor must be at fault. Now, I'm guessing you probably know far more about carburettors than I do. Not really, actually. I sort of know what it does. (laughs) It's part of an engine. (laughs) (laughs) It is part of an engine. And my understanding is that it helps to control the flow of fuel and air into the engine. That's the critical thing. And so what we're seeing here is that when the Spitfires were going into negative G, there was fuel that was leaking into the engines and that was causing the misfire. So you've got this situation, right, where you've got Tilly Schilling and the engines are manufactured by Rolls-Royce. You've got the situation where all these kind of like male engineers at Rolls-Royce are going, you know, must fix problem, must redesign engine. And they're thinking about these 
big engine overhauls and these big major redesigns that they can do. And Tilly Schilling, who's really familiar with the engine and the carburetor, realises that a single little washer could fix the problem. So she invented this washer, just a small circle of metal engineered to very, very precise dimensions that she could retrofit into the engines and solve the problem. And the rather wonderful thing here, right, is that it was officially called, this little washer was officially called the RAE Restrictor after the Royal Aircraft Establishment where she worked. But some hilarious wag, some male colleague from Rolls-Royce, looked at the shape of this thing, which is basically a circle with a hole in the middle, and he christened it Miss Schilling's Orifice. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> so, which I think... I think goes to show really how little he knew about the female anatomy, probably, is number one. And number two, perhaps how little he knew about engineering. But this is the name that's caught on. So it actually became, did she know the people at Rolls-Royce or did she sort of knock on the door and say, OK, I, I've, she was taken seriously and was part of the team? Yeah, my understanding is that while she was working at this Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough, she realised she could fix this problem. She realised it was something that she could do and that she could do simply. So whilst all these male colleagues were beavering away at Rolls-Royce with this big design, she went, look, this washer will fix the problem, right? And, you know, in today's world, you wouldn't dream of getting away with calling the washer of Miss Schilling's orifice. But you have to remember that back then she was this woman in this very, very male world who'd risen to prominence. And I'm sure she would have totally taken it in her stride and not been bothered. And in 1941, she went and toured round all the RAF bases, retrofitted this small, tiny washer into the carburettors. And for as long as those planes were subsequently in use they were much safer. She saved the lives of British pilots. And in time, the engine was redesigned and it did move on. But this washer saved lives, this tiny little washer. There you go. It's more than just an ordinary bit of metal. It saved people's lives in the Second World War. That's a lovely story. You'll know the story of Amy Johnson, Amy Johnson, the aviator who flew record-breaking flight from London to Australia in the 1930s. And actually, one of the things that made Amy Johnson special was because she was a mechanic. I think she was the first woman in Britain to get her ground mechanics aircraft licence, which meant that she wasn't just a sort of dilettante who went flying. She actually fixed the planes and actually fixed the engines and stuff. It's a great, which is also great. So, But I love that. So there we go. Mrs. Schilling's, are we allowed to call it Mrs. Schilling's orifice? Or is that forever in... Do you know what? It's still called that okay. to this day, kind of like affectionately almost. Yeah. And you got the feeling at the time from the historical records I looked at that she just, she dealt with it. She just kind of like accepted the joke and moved on. Whenever I see a washer now, I'm going to call them, pass me the orifice in honour of Beatrice yeah, Schilling. I think she'd like Tilly that. Schilling. There we go. Fantastic. Hey, listen, small inventions that make a big difference. Your book people need to buy it. And how many small inventions do you have in your book? I think it's 50 or something like that, isn't it? Something, some ridiculous amount. I have 50 small inventions and I could have written about many more. But the big thing for me was, you know, we've talked about sort of paper clips and, and staples and washers, but it's quite a personal collection as well. So it's got, you know, tea bags and socks and biscuits and pregnancy tests and barcodes. It's got all sorts in it, basically. There was an interesting story to tell about it. And if it had some personal relevance to me, it went in the book. That's great. Hey, listen, Helen, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. And it's been lovely not just to talk about inventions, but to talk about the people and the wonderful stories that these inventions open up, these wonderful worlds that they open up. So thank you very much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me.
Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed those stories. Thank you very much to Helen. And you can find her book linked in the show notes below. Uh, And I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. It's a great read. I'm back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. Coming up next, we're going to go on a trip. Old school, a proper psychedelic trip with an episode all about the origins of LSD. I hope it's not a bad one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.